So now I'm going to hand over to uh, Verity and Claire. Verity's going to come and speak, and then Claire's going to follow up. Verity's going to talk from her perspective. Verity works. Uh, Verity's part of the church. If you've not met her before, another person to have a coffee with uh, one morning. Uh, Verity works for DFID. DFID is our government's arm that engages in uh, support from the UK working with other governments and other countries, particularly in areas of great need. That's what Verity does every day of the week, and uh, she's really passionate and articulate uh, about this. Uh, Claire works, isn't, uh, uh, works for Oasis, uh, doesn't live in the area and isn't part of this uh, church, but works alongside me all week long. And Claire is the person who's carry been carrying forward Harvest for Hope and the buying of the refugee house. So uh, Claire's going to follow up on what Verity says just with some practical stuff about what's going on, where we've got to, how we move forward. You ought to know I say this um, from time to time, but the whole reason we started Harvest for Hope and sent all those clothes and tents or whatever and all those things to uh, Greece last year and developed this house is because Verity wrote a very, very long email to me, about nine pages, in fact, as I remember it, it's a document, and because uh, she felt so passionately that we needed to get involved. It took me ages to read it, um, but when I, as I did, um, it was Verity's um, passion and vision that has led us down this road. So we're really pleased, Verity, that you're speaking on this subject of our influence globally. Give Verity a round of applause. Um, this time last year, I had recently returned from working in Afghanistan and Bangladesh and was preparing for another trip to Pakistan. This year, I have a baby who doesn't like his buggy or his car seat, so our idea of travel is a very slow walk to Burgess Park, and I spend 90% of my time either at home or in Hub Coffee House. Whether I'm the best person to be speaking to you about global citizenship remains to be seen, but here goes. Um, I work for the Department for International Development as the finance lead for Asia, Caribbean and Overseas Territories, coordinating a £1.4 billion a year budget and helping to de determine how foreign aid should be directed in that region. <clears throat> DFID isn't perfect, but I believe it sincerely strives to help alleviate the suffering of the poorest people in the world, and I'm really proud of any small part I can play in that. I believe that we have a duty as global citizens to show compassion to those in need whether they live in our city or on the other side of the world. I realise I'm preaching to the choir. No one who hears that I'm going to speak to this church on why giving to the world's poor and suffering is a good thing is thinking, ooh, tough crowd. Um, you're all on board. In fact, as a nation, uh, we show a really strong record of helping the world's poor. The UK government is the uh, second largest single donor of development aid, second only to the US and one of only a handful of countries, seven in 2015, to meet the global commitment to spend 0.7% of gross national income on official development assistance. But in trying to understand how my faith should impact my attitude to the world, I think it's important to consider why I do what I do and think what I think, rather than just what I do. When I hear about the horrific, horrific suffering and poverty in the world, it seems obvious what Jesus would ask of me. As you can see, the Bible has a lot to say on the subject. Go, sell what you own, and give the money to the poor. 
Whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. But I think the risk with this message is a tendency to make the poor the other. This tends to be where I subconsciously land, I think, when considering my role as a global citizen. I recognise the suffering of others as those to be pitied and treated charitably. This impacts my decisions at work and in my own giving. Of course, I in no way do enough, but this is easier to defend because, well, any response is better than nothing, right? However, if I was more sincere about listening to what Jesus asks of me, I think the message would be as simple as, you shall love your neighbour as yourself. This presents me with my two challenges for behaving as a global citizen. Firstly, treating all people as my neighbour. And second, loving them as I love myself. At university, I studied the idea of citizenship, rights bestowed upon people according to the accident of their birthplace. Some of us are born fortunate, born with opportunities, and born in places where the state protects and cares for us. Others are born to lives of crushing poverty, born to states who neglect, exploit, and abuse them. In the UK, we have the... um, Sorry, we are born to... Where we are born and our citizenship at birth is entirely outside our control. In Britain, we have the clarity of a sea border and a common language. But in much of the world, the state you belong to depends on an arbitrary drawing of borders. And yet, we seem to ascribe some sort of importance to citizenship. We are told that we have a responsibility to look after our own first. That citizens have a right to be looked after by their government. Any assistance to others goes above and beyond. I see this at work. The foreign aid budget is increasingly controversial. Last year, the Mail on Sunday launched a petition to stop spending 0.7% of national wealth on foreign aid and described their position as follows. Despite spending cuts at home, the government is committed to hand over 0.7% of national income in overseas aid regardless of need. The Mail on Sunday believes voters do not want this and instead we should provide money only for truly deserving causes on a case-by-case basis. Whether you would consciously defend this view, I expect most of us demonstrate this belief to some extent. It's only natural. Proximity is powerful. I can certainly see this in my own behaviour. The fire at Grenfell was gut-wrenchingly awful. Our son was four days old, and I remember hearing about a baby dropped from the tenth floor, saved from the flames, and feeling so viscerally sad for those involved. Less than two weeks later, more than 150 people were killed in a fuel tank of fire in Pakistan. I don't know any of the personal stories of those involved. I didn't find out. I think it's natural to relate to some people more than others. But in recognising that all people are created in God's image, it's hard to justify why I feel more compassionate to those in London than I do to those in Ahmedpur. I don't have the excuse of not knowing or not being able to do anything about international issues that Jesus' disciples had. In this 24-hour news, Google Earth, social media, red-eye travel society, everyone is my neighbour, even if I don't treat them as such. Think about the immigration debate. Those who are anti-immigration argue that an influx of migrants would be detrimental to the UK. A dilution of British culture, longer waits for social housing, more pressure on the NHS and larger class sizes in schools. And I would find myself arguing that migrants are a huge benefit to society, both in economic terms and in the value of living alongside those from different backgrounds. I would have argued that pressure on public services was an argument for more social spending, 
not closed borders. But the premise implicit in these arguments is that we should welcome migrants so long as it has no negative impact on us. Can it really be the case that it is reasonable to deny Syrian refugees the right to any housing, healthcare or education because it might have a slightly detrimental impact to the quality of our own services? At the Department for International Development, there's been a challenging change in rhetoric over the last few years. In response to increasing negativity from the public towards the foreign aid budget, we have seen much more discussion of aid as in the national interest. Whether to reduce the risk from international terrorism or create financial opportunities from new economic markets. Um, the idea that we help others to ultimately benefit ourselves feels odds with the message of Jesus. This challenges me to treat those in need all over the world as my neighbour. And my aspiration should be to love them in a way that shows compassion, even if it is inconvenient for me, in theory. Of course, this is something I in no way achieve, but I've found that at least recognising this responsibility has impacted how I feel about global issues. My husband Ben and I discussed this at length, particularly over the summer of 2015, in relation to the Mediterranean migration crisis. We were increasingly worried about the rhetoric of the UK government, the British media, and the fairly lukewarm response from the Christian community. Feeling fairly helpless, I put some of these thoughts into an email to Steve, a very long email, hit send and hoped that would alleviate my guilt. Of course, Steve's response was much more practical. What are we going to do about it? Over a few months, a small team of us developed the idea for the next stage of Harvest for Hope, which Claire's going to update you on in a moment. In short, as a church, we plan to buy a house and welcome a family of Syrian refugees into our community as part of the Home Office's community sponsorship scheme. For me, the real strength of Harvest for Hope as a response to the crisis is that it speaks to the two challenges I've mentioned. By bringing a family from Syria and integrating them into our community, we very literally make them our neighbour. But beyond the huge impact it will have for that one family, giving a name and a face and a story to the terrible suffering happening on the other side of the world is bound to impact how invested we feel in that pain and compel us to do more for other families in their situation. And in terms of loving our neighbours as we love ourselves, we all know how easy it is to give to a deck appeal and forget about the issue. Some things are too painful to contemplate, so we would rather not. By bringing a family amongst us, we don't have the choice to ignore their suffering and the tragedy they come from. We are engaging in a long-term investment. It's inconvenient. It's messy. It's very, very complicated. And on that note, I'm going to hand over to Claire. Thanks, Verity. I'm going to do this in a far less eloquent and intelligent way than Verity just did. So, as Steve says, I work with Oasis. I work with Steve every day, which is a pleasure and a joy. And um, <laughs> so, uh, I'm going to update you on where we are with the Harvest for Hope. Um, probably just to say, in case you didn't know, so one of the first responses to Harvest for Hope was a group of people, and probably many of you here, gathering clothes, tents, food, um, everything being transported in a large um, lorry to Greece, and that was in 2015. The other response was to say, the government have launched this scheme called the Community Sponsorship Scheme, which is based on a Canadian scheme that works very, very well in Canada, which is saying, in particular, they want faith groups, churches, 
to come together and um, sponsor a family by putting them in a home for a minimum of two years. So we started to engage in that project with um, the Home Office. And one of the things that you all did as a community, first and foremost, was to raise money. So actually £17,000 has been raised as part, I mean, which has all come from this community, in order to be able to look after a family when they arrive. In addition to that, we've had about 25 people come forward and say that they would like to give money in order to invest in buying a house. As Verity says, that's a little bit complex, and we have come up against a lot of bureaucracy as well as sort of legal challenges in the midst of that. So it's been my job to try and, try and wade through it. Um, where we've got to now is that we are in a position where we've got a legal vehicle, if you like, to be able to buy a house. Uh, we've spoken to an estate agent in Kennington who are willing to help us for free in finding something in the Lambeth area, uh, which means that the Home Office have signed off on our application, that they're really happy with how we are approaching looking after a family, and we're desperately trying to secure the funds and now look for an appropriate house that isn't going to cost £2 million, because it's not cheap around here. So um, a couple of practical things, probably just as we look to uh, the house purchase phase and then afterwards. Um, some of the things that we really find that we need is anyone with any legal expert, expertise in either... Um, in the area of immigration or immigration law or looking after asylum seekers, anyone that's worked in that area, both in the legal phase of it and also maybe just one-to-one -one in engaging and supporting in people, we'd love to hear from you. Uh, the more that we know in advance of a family arriving, the better prepared we can be. Another thing is say quite practically, if you know of any properties, minimum three bedrooms, flats or houses that are potentially up for sale or someone's all of a sudden vacated their house, I don't know, you never know, um, just let us know. Um, we're looking to buy in the Lambeth area and Lambeth local authority are really, really supportive of Oasis and really supportive of this initiative as well. So we'd like to buy it in Lambeth. Um, and lastly, if you've got any um, or awareness of any Things like white goods that are really good quality um, that you think, well, I could give that away, or clothes, or potentially toys for children. Those kind of practical things that help create a sense of home. We'd also really love to hear from you around that as well. Um, I should say that Verity mentioned that there's a group of people that came together. Um, we've kind of formed a bit of a steering group. And as um, Owen and Jess, I don't know if people know Owen and Jess, they've left, they're now living in Lebanon. They've actually... They'll be coming back in a couple of years. Uh, but we were looking for other people that might be interested in being part of that steering group to say, yes, we will help form the backbone and the main kind of project impetus for when this family arrive, which would mean coordinating volunteers. It would mean thinking about how um, people have access to food and public transport, being on call 24-7 for the first couple of weeks that they're here things like that. So if you are interested in being a part of that, both in the steering group and then practically supporting the family when they're here, then again, just let Verity or I know, or even um, Ben as well. Um, I should say one of the other things that we did, um, which may have been talked about at the time, but may not have happened since, was that as a response to the, with the Harvest for Hope and taking food to Greece, during the, uh, when the camp in Calais was demolished, and it was demolished, there's no other way of describing what happened there, uh, we actually set up a safe house. Uh, the, the government approached Steve and Joy and said, would you be willing to house some of the children that are coming in from France? And we did that. We set that up in a matter of um, 48 hours because of our connection to a national network of people, um, people that are like-minded, like all of you here. 
And uh, we looked after, I think it was uh, 28 boys that came in the end, 16 and 17-year-old boys in a house in Tower Hamlets, and it was owned by the Salvation Army. My personal experience of interacting with those people as they arrived and um, with all of their helplessness and their fear and their confusion, their desperation and their joy at finally arriving to the place that they've been traveling to for years on their own was probably the most life-changing experience for me. Um, I think engaging with those that really are so different and, and really accepting them as your neighbor and understanding and meeting them in their pain and and trying to manage their expectations around their aspirations and hopes was such a transformative experience for me. I thoroughly expect this family to become a part of this community and for it to change us more than actually it changes them because when you meet people in their humanity, it is just an incredibly life-changing experience. And one of the things that we're still actively involved in are supporting three of the boys that came to that safe house are still in London and they were placed into care supported accommodation uh, they are reaching 18 and I don't know if you know what happens but normally when you're 18 the state kind of start to drop you <laughs> and uh, they are running out of money and benefits and they're looking at the future without as much support as they have now um, one of the boys texted me this week and said in fairly sort of stilted English essentially I need I need a job I need work um, potentially I'm not sure where I'm going to live in six months time and doing that journey with those boys um, and really sticking with it, at times I think I'm too busy, I can't, you know, I just can't, I haven't got the time and I don't really know how to help. But the challenge, certainly in personal challenge, about sitting alongside them and thinking, no, I'm going to advocate you right the way through until you are settled and in a home and cared for and can be self-sufficient is a really, it's a wonderful privilege. Um, and so practically speaking in that regard as well, we would really love to be able to help find those boys some work, um, part-time work that will enable them to kind of get on and be, self uh, be more independent. So if you know of any opportunities like that, then, then please do let me know. They are three of the most fantastic, gorgeous human beings I've ever <laughs> met. They really are wonderful. So, um, and they are desperate to create life here and uh, you know, really integrate well. And they just want to work and live happy and healthy whole lives so um, practically speaking if you know of anyone that might have a job available that they could be doing working in a coffee shop or doing some manual labor or anything like that then uh, let me know that would be fantastic.